up soon as well. Uh, in the back, we actually have our September flyer that's uh, going to show you all of the different things that are kicking off. Um, and so I would encourage you to take a look at that. A couple, of, One other thing I want to highlight as we're talking about the different things that are going to be launching here soon. Uh, in two weeks, uh, we're going to begin our Alpha program again. Um, Jorge had mentioned it, that, that some, of, uh, some of you out there might be new to the faith, and uh, Alpha is a program that's focused specifically on that. Uh, it's 10 weeks long. We have a meal together. We watch uh, we, we have some content on the basics of faith, like what, what's the Bible all about, who's God, what's Jesus, who's Jesus, and how does he interact with our life, those kinds of things. Um, and then we get a chance to just talk about it, um, and, and particularly encouraging you to ask whatever questions you might have. Every question is fair game. Um, and so we'd want to encourage you just to pray over that, uh, whether it's something that you would like to come to, um, to uh, we'll talk about it again next week, or if it's someone, something that you want to invite someone else to come to. Um, I, I say it often, I think Alpha is the perfect place for your agnostic friends, for people who are just wondering what's, what's out there. Um, I, they, don't, they don't know um, what, what God's all about or if they're, if they're really actually interested, and Alpha is a place uh, for those questions to get answered. So I encourage you to pray over that as well. All right, I'm going to let, if you would join me in prayer one more time, we'll, we'll move into the message after that. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to gather in this space. I thank you for an opportunity to, to come before you as a community, uh, to look at your word. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we, as we look, to look at the words in Matthew, the words of scripture, that uh, they're alive because your spirit here is, um, is here amongst us. In the book of Hebrews, you say that the scripture is alive and ac- active. Uh, and we pray for that this morning, that they aren't just words on a page, but they're your words spoken to us right now. Uh, Lord, we pray that whatever we bring in, brought here today, uh, that you meet us in that space, uh, and we can hear your voice and are drawn closer to you, and therefore then drawn closer to each other. Uh, pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so welcome to Harbor Life on Labor Day. Um, we, if, if you're new, for, I know there are a number of you who are, who are new with us for, uh, for the first time this morning. Uh, in the, we have, we've decided that in the year of 2022, we're going to be working slowly through the entirety of the book of Matthew. Uh, and we've made it to chapter 19. Um, and so we're, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, we've been slowly progressing our way through. And hopefully you've seen some things that maybe you hadn't seen before as you take the entirety of the book. Um, one of the things that I think is so fascinating is that when you read a book in, in, in sequence like this and slowly work your way through, you realize there are lots and lots of themes that continue to pop, them, pop out, that you've got layers and layers and layers of meaning that each time you look at it, you can see something new. So as we've been talking through the book of Matthew, we've seen this focus that, that, that Jesus has put on kingdom and what the kingdom means for us here. We've, we've looked at how Matthew writes his book in a way that shows Jesus to be a new kind of Moses, right? That, that Moses led, it, led the people into the promised land, and Jesus is leading us into a different kind of promised land. We've seen, for the last few weeks in particular, Jesus taking on the religious establishment and kind of flipping everything on its head, that he's challenging the religious structures uh, and the ideas of the Pharisees in that space. Today, we're going to continue to work through the book of Matthew, and um, if, if you, I want to make, make one statement before we actually jump in this week. Uh, at the beginning of this series, we promised to go through the book of Matthew and not skip the hard things. Um, and hopefully, you've, you, 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 we've, uh, we've been able to do that well. Um, but you might be wondering, if you were here last week and you were reading in order, you might be wondering why we skipped 
a passage that would seem to be hard, because the passage that comes directly after the one we looked at last week is all on divorce. And so, uh, but I want to remind you um, that if you go way back toward the beginning of 2022, um, in, it's also in, right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about divorce there. We tackled it in that space and actually brought that passage from this part of Matthew into that. So we're not trying to skip a hard topic there. We just already taught on it. So we'd, if, you, if that's something that you are, can, want, want to know more about, you can actually go back into our podcasts and, um, and listen to it there. So we're going to actually jump over that passage today, but it's because we tackled it earlier in the year. So what we're going to do today, though, is we're actually going to look at three different stories that, uh, that come back to back, and they're, but they're all focused on the same question. So if you can throw up the first slide here, Carter, we're going to look at three different stories, and in each of them, Jesus asks these people, uh, not free, feel free to delete any slides, clearly didn't delete that, sorry about that, my bad. Um, <laughs> oops. Uh, <laughs> but he asks the question to all three of these people, what do you want? It's an interesting theme that runs through all three of these stories. So we have, we're going to start with the story of a rich young man. Uh, we're going to move then to a story about James and John and, the, and, the, and their mom. Uh, and then we're going to close today with two blind men. Now, it's a lot of scripture this morning, uh, so we're not going to read every word of it. I encourage you to do that on your own. Um, but all three of these stories are connected by that one line of Jesus asking, what do you want? So let's start. Let's start with the first story. It's in Matthew 19, verse 16, which says, Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. Still lack. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. So in this story, we have this, this young man who comes to Jesus, and um, I was taught, this story gets taught a lot, actually, as I was growing up, the story we were, we, was one that we got taught um, a number of times in church, uh, and, and whenever this story was taught to me, it was always taught in a way that made this rich young man look really bad. Uh, now, granted, there are some reasons for that, um, but I want to make sure we don't miss a few things here. The first thing is, what does the young man want? It's important for us to look at. Well, he wants eternal life, right? And th- that's, which is not a bad thing to want. He wants salvation. So how do I, how do I live, into the, to live into the salvation of God for eternity? Not a bad thing to ask for. So he asked Jesus, what do I need to do to make sure I get that, to go to heaven when I die, essentially? And Jesus answers him. He says, don't kill people. Guy goes, got it, done. He says, don't cheat on your spouse. He's like, doing good with that as well. Don't steal, yep. Right? Don't, uh, don't lie. Got it? Call your mom. She probably wants you to. He goes, did it earlier today. Right? He's doing really, really well. And then love your na- really love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This kind of sums up the whole second half of the Ten Commandments. So when you're looking at this rich young man, you need to realize that you're looking at a really good Jewish boy. Right? He's, you're looking at a good Christian if Christians were around. Right? He's done all the things he's supposed to do. Actually, when Jesus says, have you kept all these pieces of the law? He goes, I have. 
This is a good person who's trying to do good by God in, this, in a system that he understands. Seriously, if we were looking at someone like him today, from the outside looking in, you would say that is a good Christian, somebody who's doing what they were supposed to do. He's a good guy. But he also realizes that something still isn't right. right? He, he even recognizes it himself. He's like, I've kept all of those things, but I'm missing something. That's why he goes to talk to Jesus in the first place. What do I still lack, he asks. And so do you notice what Jesus tells him? When, when Jesus tells him what to do, he says, keep the law, right? Keep the commandments. And he lists, actually, a whole group of them. Now, if you've ever studied the Ten Commandments before, they actually are pretty easily divided into two parts, right? The first four and the final six, are, they, they've clumped together really nicely. The, the final six are all about how we love our neighbor well, right? That's the ones that Jesus lists, right? The don't, don't steal, don't cheat, don't kill, uh, don't do those kinds of things. Well, the first four, though, are a little bit different because those are all focused on the other half of, the, of what Jesus, how Jesus sums up the Ten Commandments, and those are all focused on loving God, right? Those are the ones that, that, that say things like, don't, don't have any other God before me, or don't make for yourself an idol, or don't use God's name in vain, or keep the Sabbath. All four of those are focused on loving God well, whereas the second or the last six are all about loving our neighbor. Now, did you notice when Jesus says which commandments this guy is supposed to keep, which half of the Ten Commandments does he list? He lists the second half, right? How to, how to love your neighbor well. And, the, and this young man says, doing all that, I got it. But, he, but Jesus then leaves out that first part until their second part of their interaction. The, uh, the rich young man asks, well, what do I need to do to go beyond that? And Jesus essentially says, you're going to need to love God in the same way you're keeping the second half of those commandments. So he says, to be perfect, to to fulfill, the, to, to do all the things you're, that, you, that you, what you're lacking is that kind of commitment. So sell everything and come follow me. And the guy can't do it. It actually says he becomes sad and he walks away. Why? Well, the Bible tells us it's because he's rich. But why does that stop him? Because we, it, I would argue that it's all based on the question that we started the whole message on. Is it, it's a, it's, the, the reason it stops him is because of what he wants. This rich young man came to Jesus to find salvation. Again, not a bad thing to find. He wanted eternal life. He didn't necessarily want to follow Jesus, though. We actually know that because when he's told what he's supposed to do to follow Jesus, he says, no, I don't, I'm not interested. I'm out. I leave. Now hold on to that for just a second. Because right after that interaction, Jesus has some more things to say. He makes a statement that's really, really difficult, I think, for many of us when we're reading Scripture, in particular in America, because he says this, Matthew 19, 23. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it's, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those are really hard words. I know a lot of people who have wrestled with them a lot. So what is Jesus talking about? Now this is where our being in Matthew a whole year really helps. Helps us understand what Jesus is trying to get at here. Does anyone remember, and this is the one question that will be at the test at the end of all and hopefully somebody here knows, what were Jesus' first words of preaching in the book of Matthew? I've only said it every week for the entire year. 
There it is. All right. Yes, we're winning. All right. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. The first words of preaching in the book of Matthew. It, it, we've said it's a lens and a key to understand so much of what Jesus is teaching and, and leading us to. Now, if you are new here, that, oh, that phrase can always feel weird because we think of like a soapbox preacher, repent, for the kingdom is coming and you're going to turn or burn, that whole idea. We've talked about it a number of times. That's not what Jesus is doing with, when he's making that statement. The Hebrew word for repent is the word teshuv, and it means to turn. And the kingdom, as Jesus is declaring, is all around you. So what Jesus is saying is that I want to invite you into this kingdom kind of life. You're a little bit off target, so turn back towards it. That's what Jesus' statement is. There's this kingdom life I want you to experience. If you're aimed in the wrong direction, turn back towards it. It's the, it's the lens that we've looked at Matthew through in so many different places. It's important today for this particular passage. The rich young man comes to Jesus and asks for salvation. What Jesus is talking about here is not salvation, but, in, but experiencing the kingdom of God that's already all around them, right? It's a different phrasing, different word on purpose. So we realize throughout the book of Matthew that the kingdom of heaven is far bigger than this place we go when we die. That is part of it. I'm not denying that. But, but, it's, but the, the call of Jesus throughout Matthew is for us to experience it here and now in the current space. So now there's a long and complicated argument that I could make here to prove the point I'm about to make. Um, or you can just read the book of Romans. Um, that's hard too. Uh, I don't have time to do it all, but like I say often, if you want to talk about it, let's go grab coffee together. But, we <clears throat> but what we have here is a contrast between an understanding of salvation through the law, like how do I, how do I get salvation through doing the old things of the Old Testament, and salvation that comes post-Jesus, okay? Okay. Um, Jesus is shifting the conversation that he's had through, through most of the book of Matthew. And we actually see that in the next verses right after this the one we just read. Matthew 19.25, it says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With human beings it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, the rich young man and the disciples are looking at salvation through the lens of the Old Testament, through the law, Right? If I have to keep all of these things, like this rich young man, who can be saved? And, and they're realizing none of us. We're all going to fall short at one point or another, which we can't blame them for that. What Jesus is doing here is shifting it to, to, to the way salvation will work after his death and resurrection. All through the book of Romans and so many different places in the New Testament, it says what Jesus did is fulfill the law, so now salvation rests in him, so we don't need to keep all of the things in order to be saved. We just get saved through Jesus. Make sense? It's complicated, but that's what Jesus is doing here. So, what he's saying then when he talks about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom He's not talking about salvation in the law of the Old Testament. He's shifting it into what we've been talking about in Matthew the whole time. <clears throat> he's experiencing the kingdom life here and now in this current space. What he's saying is it's difficult for, peop for rich people to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God in their current life. Why? Because of the answer to what do you want. See, the rich young ruler wanted salvation, which is good. But he also wanted to hold on to his wealth. Why? Because that gives him a sense of control. He gets to be comfortable. Wealth provides comfort. It provides power. It provides options. It, it, it provides a space that if, okay, I'll try this thing, and hopefully it's good, but if it doesn't work, I've got this to fall back on. It keeps us with one foot in and one foot out, doesn't it? 
What Jesus is asking him to do is completely rely on me and follow me in all things. If you want to experience the kingdom, he says, that's what it's going to require. To go both feet in, not keep one out. And the rich young man can't do that. He wants salvation. He wants eternal life. But he doesn't want to have to give up his control or comfort in order to get it. So hold on to that thought. Next story. Matthew 20, 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? There's our question again, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom my father has prepared. When, <clears throat> when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. So again, we have this other story in which we have our question again, what do you want? And in this story, we have the mother of James and John, because they are the sons of Zebedee, and uh, Quick aside on this one, because I actually think that there's some uh, comedy in this story. I think Matthew is actually trying to be a little bit funny here. Uh, because if you know about James and John, um, they're the James and John that we're talking about, or the John we're talking about here is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. We're also, we also know that they had a nickname, which is which a pretty, actually a pretty awesome nickname these two guys did. Does anybody know what James and John's nickname were? The Sons of Thunder, Right? Which, if I'm going to have a brother, that's the nickname I want. I want to be a son of thunder. That's awesome, right? It's a powerful kind of name. And so James and John are known as the sons of thunder, which is amazing in that way. But then we have this story, and we've got the sons of thunder who want to be important, powerful people in Jesus' new kingdom. So what do they do to ask for it? They send their mom, (laughs) which I just think is hilarious, right? You get the sons of thunder, and they're like, Ma, can you go talk to Jesus? Uh, We'd like to be powerful. Now, if you think that she did it without them knowing, you're wrong. Because in the passage, when Jesus said, can you drink from the cup, they answered. It means they're standing right behind her, right? Like, the two of them are right there going, Ma, I need you to, I need you to put, your, uh, put a good word in for us. And then when Jesus says, can you drink in my cup, they're like, yeah, we're tough. We can do it. And you're like, I got to imagine that Matthew probably reads John's gospel. And if you know how John refers to himself in John's gospel, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. So i got to imagine Matthew's reading that and going, oh, yeah? i got a great story to put in mind. <laughs> Here we go. None of that is really from the, like, that's just my own stuff. So don't. <laughs> All right. So we're off track, but now we'll get back on. <clears throat> so we have James and John's mom. And what does she want? Well, she, she wants what's best for her sons, which all moms want, I would assume. Like the rich young man, she wants good things. Now, even better than the rich young man, she actually wants uh, her sons to be with Jesus. So the story begins with them heading towards Jerusalem. This is going to be the final time that Jesus heads towards Jerusalem. This is going to 
This is the beginning of what will kick off Passion Week, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of those things. This is the path in. And so when he says this is what's going to happen when we get there, she's assuming this is going to be the beginning of what the kingdom looks like. This is where it, what's going to kick it all off. And so she wants to make sure she asks that her kids can be an important part of this new kingdom that's coming. Which is a relatable request for moms. But she's looking at the kingdom through the wrong lens, too. The, <coughs> the rich young ruler, the rich young man, wanted heaven. I live this life, and I, want, I, I, and I want that in the next. She understands the kingdom is coming, but she's thinking about it like Israel. The, <coughs> this new kingdom is going to be like David's kingdom. It's going to be like the Maccabees. They're gonna, we're gonna, we're, Jesus will be king, and I want my sons to be vice president and speaker of the house. I don't know, whatever those, like he wants to be right in the left hand. They'd be the two important people in this particular kingdom. But Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom works. It's not what it's going to be. They wanted a title, but the title is worthless in this kingdom, Jesus says, because it's an upside-down kind of kingdom, right? It's a kingdom in which if you want to be great, you actually have to view yourself as the least. If you want to be great in this kingdom, you serve others, which is, Jesus says, is literally the model I'm going to give you. I'm going to give up my life for you. To be the greatest, you have to be the least. And so so these two want, want to be good Christians as well, and they understand it through the wrong lens. So hold on to that thought as well. We've got two stories, two people. Both wanted things from Jesus. The rich young man wanted heaven. James and John wanted mommy to ask for titles and position. Uh, they wanted to be important in this new kingdom, which, again, is not even a bad request. Right? They, they, they trust in Jesus' kingdom and the things that he's taught them, and they want to be significant players in that. But... Neither of these people get what they want. Now, I don't know the internal destination of the rich young man. I would assume, based on the way he was living, it's more likely that he's with Jesus now than not, but it's not our place to judge or know. But we see from the whole story he was, that he knew he was missing something, and we know because he walks away from Jesus, he doesn't get to experience it in that moment. We also see that Jesus says to James and John, I can't give you what you've asked for, so they don't get what they want either. So let's look at the last story, Matthew 20, 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard, Jesus was, they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. What do you want? There's our question again. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. So we have our question again. What do you want? And so Jesus is leaving Jericho, and there's these two blind guys sitting there, uh, and they yell out to Jesus. <clears throat> now, a couple of things. We can tell by the context that these guys are beggars, Right? They're sitting on the side of the road because that's all they can do. It's their life. They can't see, so they can't work or they can't produce. And so they have to hope that as people are walking out of Jericho, somebody will be gracious to them and give them uh, some money to survive on. It's their life. Now, beggars are used to asking people for stuff. Again, that's kind of what they do. And so they hear that Jesus is walking by and they cried out. Now, I'm sure they cried out often. I'm sure that as people walked by, as they could hear footsteps, they would hold out a cup, whatever they were doing to have people um, give to them. 
But we can tell from the context of this story as well that they had obviously heard about Jesus because even, uh, even when they're told to be quiet, they just yell louder. And my guess is, again, that they're not, they're not important people in society's eyes, right? That you, to cry out louder is a risk because they, they're, they're expendable. So if, the, if you cried out louder to a group of Roman soldiers, it could go very badly for you, right? But they don't. They, they, they obviously have some understanding of who Jesus is, and so they ramp it up. Jesus goes over to them and he asks them, what do you want? Now, on one hand, that's a strange question from Jesus. From his perspective, it, and especially knowing what he can do, the answer might be obvious to, 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 to have them see. He, probably, he could probably assume that, but looking at the story through, uh, that's looking at the story through our lens. Uh, we know who Jesus is, and we know he can heal. We've seen it through the whole book of Matthew, but not everyone in that time could see Jesus for who he was yet. The rich young man looked, just looked and only saw a good teacher at this point, not somebody worth following. So Jesus asks them what they want. And don't undervalue their response. Because what do, be- what do beggars normally want when, when they get the chance to talk to somebody? Money, right? And, they, and, they, and, and in this case, because that's how they survived. They needed day-to-day provision. Maybe it was money, maybe it was some food. Something to keep sustaining themselves. That's what you expect for them to ask for. But they don't. They want to see, right? Even though they're blind, ironically, they can actually see Jesus better than most of the people around them. Actually, this, the second time beggars have done that in the book of Matthew, which is, or blind men, I'm sorry, blind beggars. I want to show you something else that helps us understand that they can see who Jesus is better than everyone else. In this particular passage, they call out to Jesus and they refer to him by a specific name. They call him Son of David. Did you catch that? Now, I want to show you something. Carter, if you could throw up the, the, the one that starts with Matthew 1. The phrase, the son of David, is used in only a handful of times through the book of Matthew. And this is the progression. This is all of the instances in which the phrase has been used. Actually, it's going to be three slides, so not just this one. The first time we see it is actually in Matthew 1.1, the very, very beginning of the book. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? Right off the gate, Matthew opens his book with a declaration that the son of David here is the Messiah. Those two things are related together. Now, we don't get to hear that phrase again until we get to chapter 9. When it says, and they went from there, two blind men, different blind men, but again, they can see something that we couldn't. Jesus went out from them, and two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. There's a tie between chapter 1 and chapter 9. They see him as the son of David, which means they see him as the Messiah, which we know from the rest of the book of Matthew, most people did not see. Actually, in chapter 12 is the next time we see it. And we said all the people who were there were astonished and said, could he be the son of David? So the crowds that are following him, by the time we get to chapter 12, are just beginning to believe that maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe. You remember from a few weeks ago, we were outside Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the answer is, basically everything else other than the Messiah, right? Some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're all the, John the Baptist back from the dead. Not son of David, though. So we realize the greater crowds don't see him yet as the Messiah. Next slide. The next time we see the phrase, the son of David, used is by the Canaanite woman, which we talked about a few weeks ago, too. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. 
<coughs> oh, wow, that was way loud. I wish I had gone this way. Sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Again, we have a Canaanite woman. If you, if you remember that, uh, Canaan, Canaan, Canaan is the arch rivals of Israel. They're, the, they're considered to be, in the Israelite mind, the most horrible people you can think of. And yet she sees Jesus as the son of David again, as the Messiah. Next time, the next time we see the phrase used is in the passage we just read. They use it twice. And then finally, the only other time that we see it in the book of Matthew is actually in a couple chapters. If you want to go next slide, Carter is here. The crowds went ahead of them, and this is the triumphal entry. Right? When Jesus is riding in on a donkey, the crowds finally make their declaration, Hosanna to the Son of David. And ironically, because if you know the passage that comes right after this, is when Jesus weeps because they still miss the point. And so the point I'm making here is that these two blind men are able to see who Jesus is, and not just to see him as a good teacher or someone who can heal they see him as, the, as God incarnate, as the Messiah who's come for them. And so they ask for their sight. In other words, what, they, what, they're, what they're doing is allow Jesus to be who he is. They don't need position. They don't even ask for eternal life. They just want to be with Jesus now. And they get what they ask for. And the Bible tells us that once they receive their sight, what do they do? They immediately then go and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. They get what they ask for and they follow Jesus. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that on display in this particular story. They didn't have anything, and so they're totally content and happy to allow Jesus to be Jesus, to be the Messiah, to be the God of their life. It's the same idea that James is talking about in James 1, verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildfire. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. And, the, and, and its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business. It's the same idea here. That this, these, these poor people in this, this space don't have anything holding them back from just completely going all in and following Jesus. Whereas the rich young man had to weigh those two things together. If I go and follow Jesus, it's going to require me to lose my safety net. If you don't have a safety net, might as well go, right? See, this is the final story. Uh, this, is this, this, is, this story is how those two passages play out. Blind men are desperate. They're beggars. They have nothing. And so they don't struggle to let Jesus be Jesus. So how do we tie all of these three stories together? They all hinge on that phrase that Jesus says, what do you want? I think, I see, I think for a lot of us Christians in a Christian community, a lot of us answer it like the rich young man do. We want heaven. I think a lot of that's the church's fault too, not just the, the church in, in America particularly. Don't get me wrong. I want to be with all of you for eternity. I hope all of you find a, find a, the, a space where you can declare Jesus as Lord. I want, want that for all of you. But it's also only part of the gospel. It's an important one, don't get me wrong again, but it's not the whole thing. I think if a lot of us were to ask, or if, we're, if Jesus was to ask us the same question, I think unfortunately though, a lot of us would answer the same way the rich young man does. I want eternal life. I, want ju I just want heaven. It's why so many of us as Christians just want to toe the line. What can I do to just not go to hell? Right? What, what can I do to just go to heaven when I die? 
is this okay? Is that okay? How close can I get? And how, how far can I push that edge? Actually, when I was young, this was a really hard thing for me because I actually thought deathbed confessions were really unfair. Does anybody else ever think that? So I grew up in a Christian, in a Christian uh, I grew up inside the church, and, so, and I grew up in a church that was very, very rule-focused, right? These are the rules you need to do in order to be a Christian and go to heaven someday. And some of those were, I didn't like, I thought, right? And some of them were for my own good, and I didn't like it, I get it. But I was like, well, wait a minute. So a deathbed confession means I could go and live and do whatever I want, which would be great and fun and awesome, and at the end, still make it in. That's unfair, I thought, right? Uh, maybe you've been there. But, it's the funda- but that means I was answering the question, what do you want the same way the rich young man was? Because the only thing I wanted was heaven then. It was actually, in, the, in a deathbed confession, being unfair would assume then that living with following Jesus was to my detriment. Right? The entire book of Matthew has said otherwise. That there's this kingdom life all around you that leads to this fullness of life that you can only get there. The best life you can have, not the easiest though, right? It's going to require these really difficult things to get there. Um, And that's where the gospel message is all about. Some of us just want salvation. Others of us answer it like James and John. What do you want? I want to be with Jesus. I want to be part of the church. I want to be part of this community. I do see value in it. But I want to be known as a good and powerful person amidst that space. I want to be, I want to be, I want to, I want to, I want to see, I want to be seen as a good Christian. I want people to see the things that I'm doing and give me credit for it. To see me as a good Christian in in this world, as someone who should be looked up to. I want the title in that space. I think there are a lot of us that will answer it that way too. And they were in the time of Jesus as well. That's why when Jesus says, don't do your good work so that everyone can see them, right? Because, he, because there are people that are going, I want everybody to see how great I am, how much I give, or how much I serve, or how well I follow the rules. And it creates this weird space that we've seen in the church so often, right? In which we compare ourselves to each other, right? Where we get real legalistic to say, well, I do all these great things and this person doesn't, so I'm a good Christian, they're not. I think a lot of us, when we answer the question, what do you want? We answer it like James and John. We want to be important in the kingdom. What what Matthew is trying to teach us in this story is to look at the beggars in this case. When they're asked, what do you want? They say, we want our sight, and then we want to follow you, Jesus. Let you be Jesus. If we answer like they do, we have, to re- we, have to, we have to walk into the response that they walk into. If you want to experience the fullness of the kingdom all around you, that's what Jesus is offering. Then you need to use the blind men as your example. When Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to experience the kingdom of heaven, he's saying that, if there, that there's a kingdom life out there for you, but the only way that you can grasp it is to go all in. Is to put aside your sa- the, the, is put, to put aside the things that are ho- that are keeping you from trusting Jesus to be who He says He is. He's saying if you want to experience this life, you've got to, you have to go all in and follow Jesus in that particular way. To experience the fullness of the kingdom requires you to see Jesus for who He is, the Son of David, and then let Him be who He is. 
Actually, let him be the Lord of your entire life. Trust him to actually lead into that fullness of life. Right? Which means there are lots of areas that we probably need to give over. We have to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our money, which can be scary for a lot of us because that would give up the control and the stuff that we talked about earlier. We have to allow him to be the Lord of our time, which might mean sacrificially serving other people in certain spaces. Or like last week, the Lord of whether we forgive or not our relationships. He needs to be of our enti- Lord of our entire life, which feels incredibly overwhelming. It probably leads us into a similar space the disciples were in. Well, then who can be saved? Now, I want to close with just a couple thoughts. It's, it would be really easy for us to leave it, to end this message right there, to say that so many of us have kept areas of our life in which we don't want Jesus to be Lord, and so all of us aren't experiencing the kingdom life. As true as that is, I, don't, I, I think if we just leave it like that, we could all go home feeling a lot of shame, and that's not the goal. <clears throat> what Jesus is inviting us into, into this particular space, is... is is, um, is a progressive movement towards a deeper and deeper relationship with him. You see, salvation itself, the, the acceptance of Jesus as our Lord to, to move into heaven and eternity is in, in, incredibly easy. It's the declaration that I, you are God and I am not God and I'm allowing, allowing you to do that. It's very, very, very simple. The, the path after that is incredibly difficult to continue to walk into that sanctified kind of life. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I have a whole bunch of areas in my life in which I have been either like the rich young man or I've been like James and John, in which I have kept them for myself so that I, can, that I can hold on to that kind of control. You're not alone. We're all in that boat. What Jesus is encouraging us to do is move towards a place where we can be like the beggars, like the, the blind men, but recognizes that all of us need to make that progression. So the challenge this morning is to not feel bad if you have areas of your life that you've been keeping back. The challenge this morning is to pick one and move towards that, move towards where the beggars were. So whatever that might be this morning, maybe, maybe it is your finances. Maybe it's saying, I have kept that safety net that keeps me from having to go all in with Jesus. Well, pray over that and see where he might lead. Maybe last, maybe last week was convicting for you because you realized there was a relationship that's broken and you need to forgive but you've wanted to hold on to that because of whatever reason. Maybe it's taking that first step to say, what would it actually look like if I did let Jesus be who he is and live into that kind of life? Whatever it might be, my challenge for you this week is to just pick one thing, one area where, you have, where you've kept one foot out, where you've, kept, where you've prevented Jesus from being the Lord of your life in that way, and just try it out. What does it look like to experience the kingdom in those spaces? I'll tell you that, at least in my experience, if you let the, pro- if you let the process finish, finish its work, right, which is what James says as well, you will always experience a fullness that you can't find anywhere else. If you let forgiveness finish its work, you find a deep, deep of re- depth of relationship you can't get anywhere else. If you allow uh, God to be the God of your finances or money, then you experience a fullness you won't see anywhere else. If you allow God to... to, to uh, to affect the way you use your time or the way you work at your job, all of those things, it's hard at first, but it's life-giving in the end. How we answer the question that Jesus asks to each of these people will shape the way we live as Christians. When, 
you came into church this morning because you wanted to experience God in some way. If Jesus were to ask you, what do you want? What would your answer be? Do you want just heaven? Do you want to be a good Christian? Or do you want to experience the fullness of life that God has to offer? Because what you do next will be determined by the answer to that first question. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just <clears throat> come before you realizing that so often um, what we want is like the rich young man. We just want heaven. We just want to make sure that when we die, then we get to have the, the perfection that you promised us is there. Lord, we want to, if that's, if that's us this morning, we want to repent of that, turn away from that, because we realize then we've missed out on so many good things you want for us. Other of us just want to be seen by other people as good. If that's the case, we want, to change, we want to turn from that as well. Lord, show us the areas in our lives where we haven't allowed you to be the Lord of our life. And then give us the courage to step out of that into the fullness that you've promised. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.